Good evening. I am really so pleased to be able to welcome you here to Barnard for this year's Ingeborg, Tamara, and Yonina Rennert Forum on Women in Judaism, and particularly pleased to welcome uh, this year's Rennert, Rennert Forum lecturer, Rabbi Rachel Kontroster. Rachel, as you already know, is a Barnard alumna, a 2001 graduate who majored in women's studies. I had the honor and privilege of serving as her thesis advisor in her senior year, and I followed her subsequent studies and professional life with great interest. After completing her rabbinical studies at Jewish Theological Seminary of America, just across the street, she was ordained in 2008. Rachel is currently the Director of Education and Outreach for Rabbis for Human Rights North America, as well as the interim co-director of that organization. At Rabbis for Human Rights, Rahel directs campaigns against U.S.-sponsored torture and modern slavery. Her commitment to this work is tireless. She carries it with her wherever she goes, as evidenced by her recent Facebook status, which observed, I've often noticed that responding to what do you do with I fight slavery and torture is a good way to create silence at a dinner party. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Rahel is a noted speaker, teacher, and writer on Judaism and human rights, and her work with Rabbis for Human Rights has expanded to include critically important coalition work. Hence, I recall seeing her on a panel last summer alongside researchers from Physicians for Human Rights when that organization released its devastating report, Experiments in Torture, Human Subject Research and Evidence of Experimentation in the Enhanced Interrogation Program in June of 2010. More recently, she's mobilized the Rabbis for Human Rights campaign Stand Together, a campaign against anti-Muslim bigotry in the U.S. And you can see the videos that are part of that campaign on YouTube under the memorable tagline, all one word, Rabbis Against Islamophobia. Rahel's writing has appeared in the journals Shema and Conservative Judaism in numerous anthologies, including the recent Jewish Choices, Jewish Voices, Social Justice, and also on the Internet. In 2009-2010, she was a writing fellow for the American Jewish World Service. She serves on the boards of the National Religious Campaign Against Torture and Chazon, which is a Jewish environmental organization. She lives in Teaneck, New Jersey, with her husband, Paul Pelevin, and their daughters, Leora and Eliza. And Paul is here as are uh, Rahel's parents and uh, in-laws. So welcome to all of you. It's really great that you're all here. It's really with great pleasure and pride that I welcome Rabbi Rachel Kontroster back to Barnard College for this year's Ingeborg, Tamara, and Yonina Rennert Forum on Women in Judaism. The title of her talk is Created in God's Image, Intersections of Judaism, Gender, and Human Rights. Rachel. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's, it was a tremendous honor for me when you asked me to come back to Barnard to speak. And I, I wanted to thank you for, for bringing me back to the Center for Research on Women for having me as a speaker. Um, it's been almost 10 years since graduation, and I remember my first visit to Barnard as a junior in high school. And I sat on the lawn um, by the library under a magnolia tree, which I don't think is there anymore. I think it, it is still there. Okay. I knew there was a tree that came down when I, when I was at Barnard. And I sat under the tree, and I saw, thought... I'm going to sit here for four years, and I'm going to study, and I'm going to read, and everything will be all right with the world. And that's what I did. It was great. Uh, and that was really the moment when I decided to come to Barnard. 
And I credit Barnard and being in women's studies, actually, specifically, with providing me with some of the critical lenses I bring to my experience as a rabbi and as an activist. It taught me how to examine who holds power, which voices are being heard, and how to take on systems that support the status quo. So there's a quote from Elie Wiesel from his book, The Nazi Doctors and the Nuremberg Code that I really, code that I really like. And he writes... We must not see any person as an abstraction. Instead, we must see in every person a universe with its own secrets, its own treasures, its own sources of anguish, and some measure of triumph. No person is an abstraction. No person is just a statistic, an apology from a general, a picture on CNN, an example to be pitied, or a device to make you feel guilty. Every person, your friend, your neighbor, your enemy, is a universe. From a Jewish perspective, we say that every human being is holy, created B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God. And imagine for a moment just how different the world would be if the sacredness of every human being was respected. To use the language of Martin Buber, it's insisting on the importance of the I-Thou relationship in a time when human life is very, very cheap. In my work on slavery, one of the concepts that really haunts me, that actually brings everything into focus about how cheap human life is today, was that in the 1860s, at the, height of the, Ameri at the beginning of the American Civil War, an African-American slave was worth in adjusted dollars about $40,000. But today, you can buy a human being for about $50 to $100. Human life is so cheap that it's cheaper to buy another person than to heal a sick one. I can buy a minion of people, a Jewish quorum, for less than I paid for the computer I just bought last week. We're so inter interconnected as a human species with information and goods and people flowing around the world, but there are so many of us that each individual's humanness can get lost because there's always somebody else. Fighting for human rights today in that kind of environment Insisting on the sacredness of those we would forget about is really an uphill battle. It feels messianic. The scope of the problems are paralyzing, but it's a challenge we have to rise to. The Torah begins with the creation of every human being in God's image. It's the pinnacle of the creation of the world, the heart of the blueprint of reality, and that's a mandate that we can't ignore. I think I've always thought of myself as an activist. It's something I learned from my parents who, when I was a baby, fought for the ordination of women as conservative rabbis. My twin sister and I were the poster children. She's not a rabbi. Uh, growing up in Toronto, I should point out I'm a dual citizen, so I was born here. I was two Canadian parents. I was raised in Toronto. We moved back before I started high school. But growing up in Toronto, I tried to teach my second grade teachers that Judaism and feminism were not at odds. I was probably the wrong student to tell that a bat mitzvah was just an excuse for a party. Somewhere in my files, I have a letter from Brian Mulroney, then the Prime Minister of Canada, in response to an impassioned plea I sent him as an eight- or nine-year-old about the plight of Soviet Jews. I was a news junkie before the hour of 24, the era of 24-hour cable, following the fall of the Iron Curtain from my bunk at camp and trying to rewrite my globe to reflect all the new countries. And I have an enduring memory of turning on the radio on the way home from a bat mitzvah lesson to hear the announcement that the first Gulf War had begun. 
Though I couldn't see the scope of it at the time, when I started rabbinical school in 2003, social justice as a driving force for Jewish engagement and action was about to launch in a big way. And really, seven, years, seven or eight years is not a long time, but things have really changed since that time. Organizations such as Jewish Funds for Justice, American Jewish World Service, Chazon, and Rabbis for Human Rights were about to become visible and strong new players on the Jewish communal scene. And there are a variety of reasons for this. The historian Jonathan Sarna has suggested that it represented, in part, a return to a slightly earlier model of American Jewish identity. Universalism, the idea that Jews had to be a light unto the nations, that we see very strongly in the identity of the reform movement, and the utopian visions of the Jewish socialist movements and the Jewish workers' movements, had been very dominant players in certain parts of Jewish life. But after the Six-Day War in 1967, we saw the pendulum swing towards a more particularistic, nationalistic type of Jewish identity. In the early 21st century, Jews, especially younger Jews, began to look outwards again in large numbers. They sought out voices linking authentic Jewish values to progressive positions, trying to find a balance between the tensions articulated by Hillel in Pirkei Avot. If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself, what am I? My junior or senior year at Barnard, Columbia and Barnard Hillel was the site of the first American Jewish World Service spring break trip to the alternative spring break trip to the developing world. Trips that are now very, very common on college campuses, but back then were, were something new. Deuteronomy's called Tzedek Tzedek Tirdof, justice, justice, shall you pursue, is now seen as the heart of Jewish identity for many. A couple of years ago, I had a professor at the seminary tell me that I want to repair the world had replaced I want to study Torah as the favorite answer of applicants to the rabbinical school as to why they wanted to be there. And it just wasn't that way, especially outside of the reform movement not such a long time ago. Um, Jenny, Jenny, Jenny Rosen, who now works for the Cummings Foundation but was the rabbi on campus when I was here, talks about the fact that she and her husband, Rabbi David Rosen, obviously had to get married because when they met in rabbinical school, they were the only rabbis they knew doing social justice. And now it seems to be why everyone's there. Um, Abraham Joshua Heschel said that God was waiting for us to redeem the world, and it seems like we might finally have noticed. Of course, the rise of the Jewish social justice movement, and, and there's a lot of money being put behind it, um, not only because it promotes real change in the world, but also because it promotes Jewish identity. The rise of Jewish social justice has not been without its gaps. Israel and social justice have largely been kept separate. And the movement's been largely apolitical, with traditional lobbying left to established organizations. These two things have started to change. And I certainly the work I do is political. I do lobbying. But that change has come recently and very slowly. There's been very little discussion of the wars in Iraq and in Afghanistan in the Jewish social justice movement. And that's more a reflection of the general American disengagement with the wars rather than a problem specific to the Jewish community. So you could argue that while American Jews have taken an important interest in both their local communities and the world at large, the movement to do so has ignored some very large human rights concerns in which we as Jews and Americans hold a major stake. But I wasn't aware of any of this in January of 2004 when I found myself in Ciudad Romero, El Salvador, part of the first delegation specifically of rabbinical students that American Jewish World Service sent to the developing world to learn firsthand about their grassroots human rights work. 
These trips are really competitive now, but the, back then when we left, no one understood why they were going. What are you going to do in El Salvador? You're a rabbi. You can't plow a field. You can't build a house. They were right, but it was really transformative. And um, one of my rabbinical school classmates who was there with me claims, now I don't remember saying this, but I actually can imagine that I did, that when we went around the group and we asked why we were all there, I apparently said something like, well, I'm not really so sure about this whole social justice human rights thing. I don't know if it's for me or whether it will affect me becoming a rabbi, but I'm just here to learn about it. It's a little ironic. But for many people who go on service learning trips, the experience is really transformative. Real human beings changing their lives at the grassroots level become concrete, concrete people changing their lives, and they cease to become an, abstra an abstraction, someone over there doing something. Also, the trips allow people to live authentically Jewishly while connecting globally, and that fits together pieces of their Jewish identity puzzle. But I have to tell you, I struggled with a different kind of thing when I was in El Salvador. A challenge, a challenge of responsibility. The reality of the fact that much of the problems we saw stemmed from the American intervention in El Salvador in the 1980s under President Reagan. And it was the first time I had confronted being in a country where the United States had something to answer for. And I just hadn't known about it. And I couldn't say, I'm not responsible. I'm a Canadian, unlike these other people I'm traveling with who really should do some self-reflection. <laughs> Responsibility doesn't work like that. And I had that kind of internal confrontation again in the spring and summer of 2007, right before my last year of rabbinical school, when I started working for Rabbis for Human Rights to fight the U.S.-sponsored torture of detainees in the war on terror. Our campaign, Honor the Image of God, Stop Torture Now, a Jewish campaign to, against U.S.-sponsored torture, had been underway for more than a year. And indeed, I heard, first heard about the opportunity at RHR because I'd heard my predecessor, Rabbi Melissa Weintraub, do a scholar-in-residence weekend at the synagogue I went to, in which she presented in graphic detail the abuse of Iraqi men at Abu Ghraib. And she painstakingly laid out the halakhic case, the case in Jewish law against torture. As I listened to her, and that whole summer as I started reading and watching television shows and, and, and just learning more, I realized I'd been in a state of ignorance. I saw the reports, but I changed the channel when the pictures were shown. I'm pretty squeamish. I changed the channel. Unable to watch a human being being desecrated, but able to choose to look away. To begin to fight torture, I had to begin to say, my country did this. So much of fighting for human rights is about dealing with a willful unknowing, about dealing with the fact we've, we've pretty much chosen to be blind. I do think it's a choice. We have to know there are compromises being made for our safety, for the food that we eat and the clothes that we buy, to bring us electricity, to support our allies. We choose to look away because it's just overwhelming not to. I was speaking recently with another activist rabbi about an article that had appeared about the fact that Trader Joe's has not signed on to the Fair Food Campaign, which is a campaign of the Immokalee Workers Coalition in Florida to end slavery in the Florida tomato industry. There is, it's pretty well documented that there is slavery in the Florida tomato industry and that, any, and that would be true of any tomato you ate off-season. And the campaign wants to raise the wholesale price of tomatoes paid to the pickers by just two cents a pound. And Trader Joe's won't sign on. 
And the other rabbi was really troubled by what she read. And she said to me, you know, food justice, fair trade, sustainability, it's just something I don't want to look at because once I do, once I know the problems and human rights abuses in every stage of the production, I'm going to be paralyzed every single time I go to the grocery store. And I understand what she means. I mean, that's what it's like to go grocery shopping with me. And none of us want to think about child slavery in the Ivory Coast when we eat a chocolate bar. But we have to acknowledge that our decision not to know is, in fact, a choice. It's a second naivete, cloaking ourselves in the myth of a just world, so we can just finish our grocery shopping and get on with our lives. But our choice doesn't absolve us of responsibility. Gita Gutierrez is a lawyer with the Center for Constitutional Rights who's worked with the detainees in Guantanamo, and she describes the dilemma we face when we confront our acts of unknowing about human rights. She said this, I ask you to consider that our nation did not torture because of the Bush administration. Our nation tortured because of the American people. We allowed it to happen. I allowed it to happen. You allowed it to happen. We all knew what was going on in Guantanamo. We saw photos. Certainly by 2004, when the photos of Abu Ghraib came out and the stories of the men, particularly some of the British citizens who were released and told what happened to them, were out there, we knew. And I still went grocery shopping and saw movies and watched TV and got hooked on Lost. When we looked at this from an international perspective and what we could have done, we didn't. We were very comfortable in this country, and we didn't. We didn't do enough eight years ago, and we didn't do enough six years ago, or four years ago, or two years ago, and the men are still there. We have to become aware. I know awareness is an overused term with, with social justice causes. There's an episode of The Simpsons where they all come together for, uh, for, a, um, for a benefit that the program that is for awareness, actually. It's for, they say, well, if I'd known it was for awareness, I absolutely would have signed on right away. So awareness is an overused term. But in situations where we've chosen to make a human rights problem invisible, you really have to start by unmasking the unknown. When RHR started dealing with the issue of modern slavery, and let's think about it, slavery is illegal everywhere, but 27 million people or more today live as slaves, more than any other point in human history, including in our own communities. When we started raising awareness and doing educational campaigns around slavery about two years ago, I asked an activist at Free the Slaves if we were really making a difference just by raising awareness. And she said that slavery was so invisible that by bringing it out into the open and forcing people to talk about it, we were taking a really critical step. So we, we do have to open our eyes and become aware. Jewish tradition denies us the right to feel safe in not knowing. It denies us the ability to abdicate our responsibility out of ignorance. The Talmud teaches us in Shabbat that all who can protest against something that one of their family is doing and does not protest is held accountable for their family. And all who can protest against something that one of the citizens of their city is doing and does not protest is held accountable for the actions of all the citizens of their city. And all who can protest against something wrong that's being done in the whole world and doesn't protest is held accountable together with all the citizens of the world. And that's our challenge in today's global community. The older systems of morality privileged those who were close at hand because your sphere of influence was limited. Today, our complicity and our responsibility go far beyond what they used to. They radiate outwards. 
As Abraham Joshua Heschel famously commented on our interconnectivity, few are guilty, but all are responsible. We're responsible because we fail to acknowledge the other as created in the image of God. Created in the image of God. This is not a trite, trivial sentiment akin to saying that we should all just try to get along. If you take God seriously, then you have to take the image of God seriously, that sacredness, to recognize that every person, no matter how different, is sacred. And that image translates into real bodies. Human beings aren't just abstract embodiments of the transcendent nature of God, but physical embodiments of God's presence. Human rights violations happen to real men, real people, real men, women, and children, and that's why it's so painful and why we'd rather ignore it. There's a moment in Rory Kennedy's documentary, Ghosts of Abu Ghraib, where one of the former detainees holds a picture of a, fo- of a prisoner in a stress position, and he identifies himself. He's not an abstraction. He's sitting right there. And that's why the voice of survivors of all kinds of human rights abuses are important, not to make us feel guilty and not to shock us, but to make it concrete. In the Midrash, Ben-Azai and Rabbi Akiva were arguing about what is the greatest principle in the Torah. And Rabbi Akiva quoted Leviticus, and he said, love your neighbor as yourself is the greatest principle, the Jewish variation on the golden rule. And if you look, you can see that the golden rule, do not do unto others that you would not have done unto you, is found in pretty much every society. But Ben-Azai argued differently. He said, this is the greatest principle. The verse from Genesis that says, this is the record of Adam's line. When God created the human, God made him in the likeness of God. So being created in the likeness of God, that's the greatest principle in the Torah. And Rabbi Arthur Green understood the disagreement like this. Love is too shaky a principle on which to stand the entire Torah. Perhaps Ben-Azai also saw that Akiva's principle might be narrowed, conceived of only in terms of your own community. Your neighbor, after all, might refer to just your fellow Jew or your fellow in piety in good behavior. But how about the sinner? How about the stranger? How about your enemy? Ben-Azai's principle leaves no room for exception because it goes back to creation. It's not just your kind of people who are created in God's image, but everyone. Once we have a basic principle, or even a set of basic principles, we have a standard by which to evaluate all other rules and practices, teachings and theological ideas, laws and political systems. Does this particular practice lead us closer to seeing the divine in every person? Might this interpretation of the Torah verse be an obstacle towards doing so? Is this regime acting in conformity with treating every person as created in God's image? And to go back to the rabbis of the Midrash for a second, Rabbi Tanhuma responds to the debate by reminding us that by dishonoring another human being, we had to know we were dishonoring God. The ta- rabbi said, Gadol kvod habriot, great is human dignity. So great it can override even a biblical commandment. That's right. The need to protect the sacredness of the other, to uphold human dignity, can override the laws of the Torah. Now, that's really interesting to me when we think about torture and human rights abuses, but especially torture, because with the ticking time bomb scenario looming large in everyone's mind, I feel like the program 24 was like a ticking time bomb every single week, but the ticking time bomb is we've seen it on TV or in the movies, and you've captured a terrorist, there's a nuclear bomb about to go off. If you just torture the terrorist, you'll find out where the bomb is. And we see it all the time. The general understanding, because of this scenario, in the minds of a lot of Jews and a lot of other people as well, is that saving a life, pikuach nefesh, overrides everything else in the Torah, except for murder, idolatry, and sexual assault. So if, it's a, if, it, if to save a life is to save the whole world, 
then in the ticking time bomb scenario, torture should be okay. But dishonoring God or dishonoring God's image through torture, that denial of human dignity, dignity doesn't fall by the wayside in situations of emergency. And we learn from the rabbis that shaming another person in public, humiliating them, is akin to killing them. I think if you think about what was done in the torture, of, um, in, the, in, the, in the American torture of detainees, we see that a lot of it was specifically designed to humiliate Muslim men based on their religious principles. Um, the use of dogs, the, the, the use of, of sexual abuse, it was very much designed to humiliate them. So if shaming another person in public is akin to killing them, it's a very powerful image. When you're shamed in public, when you're embarrassed, you go white, right? And the blood drains from your face. So it's like you've spilled, your blood has been spilled. And while torture isn't very effective if the goal is to get information, it's very effective if the goal is to humiliate, to desecrate, to terrorize, and to abuse. So maybe torture, in its desecration of the physical embodiment of the divine image, overrides pikuach nefesh, overrides saving a life, because it, in some sense, constitutes murder. One book I've been mulling over recently is by Charles and Gregory Freed, father and son. Charles Freed was Solicitor General under Reagan. And the book is called Because It's Wrong, Torture, Privacy, and Presidential Power in the Age of Terror. And their arguments, essentially wiretapping is wrong because it's illegal, but torture is illegal because it's wrong, force us to confront an argument from deontology, namely that an act, in this case torture, is wrong whether or not the consequences are right. So Machiavelli's at the end justify the means it doesn't, does not work with torture. Um, and that's really important because I've encountered people who ask me why we're speaking about torture at all because if it, didn't, if it doesn't work, we shouldn't, there's, no, there's no question. If it doesn't work, it should be illegal. But that leaves open the question of what we would do if it did work. While the book is secular, the freed starting point is, is that to torture is to distort and desecrate the image of God. And they begin with a lengthy dis, uh, description of Leon Golub's painting, Interrogation One. The painting describes a naked man, depicts a naked man, hung upside down, face tilted back, mouth open in a screen, being beaten by two uniformed officers. The freeds write, the image of God is hanging between the two officers. And that struck a chord with me because I remember there's a line in Elie Wiesel's book, Night, after, the, um, after a child has been executed by the Nazis and someone asks, where is God? And they'd say, They're hanging, God is hanging on the gallows right now. And so I think about that when, say, when the Freeds write that, that God is, it's like God is hanging between the two officers. God's presence has been made physical in the tortured person. Interrogation one is very concrete about what it means to be created in the image of God. Invoking God reminds us that the victim has an infinite value, a value and significance of which nothing is greater. To say that a human being is created in God's image means that nothing can justify that desecration, not even our own survival. Because, argue the Freeds, if we're willing to desecrate God's image, what have we really survived as? Monsters? You know, sometimes I feel like in this public discourse about safety, when our leaders tell us that the world has changed and the gloves need to come off, that appealing to moral values is seen as weak. But it's actually a sign of strength, a counterbalance of the impulse to revenge. Acting out of revenge is easy. Finding God in every human being is hard. I think it's one of the reasons why we come together in coalitions as a religious community, groups that don't necessarily always agree to protest the use of torture, to speak out against slavery, and demand, to demand that God's image be, be recognized. I have to say, I don't always find myself in the same room as evangelicals like Rick Sizek or with the National Council of Bishops, of Catholic Bishops. 
But we've all been partners in the National Religious Campaign Against Torture, which I kind of function as the Jewish outreach arm of. It was founded with the recognition that while the United States is a secular country, religious arguments carry weight, especially with political leaders. That's just the way things are. And NRCAT's statement of conscience on torture as a moral issue reads in part, nothing less is at stake in the torture abuse crisis than the soul of our nation. What does it signify if torture is condemned in the word but allowed in deed? It's an excellent question, and if our religious leaders don't ask it, who's going to? Now, when I speak about this, describing the damage that torture does to us as a nation and that we remember, have to remember that every person is created in God's image, even those who try to hurt us, I inevitably get some variation on the following question. That those who try to hurt us, I was just asked this a week and a half ago in Princeton, that those who try to hurt us are evil, that they do terrible things, that they don't believe that every human being is created in God's image. So why should we accord them that privilege? But being created in God's image is not a privilege in Jewish tradition, reserved for those who act justly. It's true of the good, and it's true of the evil. And just because others are evil, it doesn't give us a free pass to abandon our own ideals. I don't want the moral compass to to live in a world where the moral compass is dictated by Al-Qaeda. We can be safe and still honor the image of God. The Torah teaches, With justice and righteousness shall you judge your fellow. And Gregory Freed describes the challenge like this. Just as we expect soldiers to display courage in war, to risk their lives in a cause, we must ask for similar courage from all citizens of a free country, to renounce tools of war and interrogation such as torture that promise increased safety, or seem to, but which in fact constitute a poison pill for democracy. So it's not about them, it's about us. It's interesting, I was at a rally in front of the White House for United Nations Day of Support for Victims and Survivors of Torture in June of 2009, And one of the other rabbis there objected to the language of many of the speakers. He said, you're too focused on the innocent people we tortured. Everyone agrees it's horrible when that happens. But there are terrorists down in Guantanamo, and we need to convince Americans that those prisoners shouldn't be tortured either. And he's right. And that's been on my mind a lot with the announcement that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed can't be tried in a a civilian trial here in New York because the evidence against him was obtained under torture. And so he's an evil person, but... We're not, he's not going to be afforded the rights that don't, you, know, you don't just get rights because you're innocent. Everyone gets rights. Defending human rights means defending everyone. Sometimes I feel like when, when, you, when you defend the rights of people who are very dangerous and difficult, it's like defending cop killers who also have rights. So just as we had no right to ship innocent people to Afghanistan and Syria and Egypt to torture them and deny the divine image in them, we also didn't have the right to torture the, the, the people who are guilty. They, too, are created in God's image. I have to say, though, the religious community has a lot to answer for on this. We haven't done a very good job of holding on to this value. Studies have shown that the more often you go to church, the more likely you are to support the use of torture. And vice versa. The humanists and the atheists have us all beat. Um, so it seems like they, they've, 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 even though it's not from a religious perspective, they've, people who don't believe in God have internalized the value that we're all created in the image of God. But those of us who believe that we're all created in the image of God, we have a lot to answer for. A survey done by the Pew Forum in 2009 showed that white evangelical Christians supported the use of torture some or all of the time more than any other religious group. Now, there are reasons for this. Politics tend to trump religion in terms of ethical, an ethical response to the war on terror. And that's also the group that voted for President Bush in the largest numbers. Belief in a religious tradition that believes every human being is a reflection of the divine image apparently isn't enough. 
What's really interesting to me is that's not the end of the story. When the question about torture was phrased in terms of the golden rule, that we should not do to our enemies what we wouldn't want done to our own troops, support for torture goes way down. The use of torture may be wrong because of our universal values, but it's an appeal to particularism, to support for those who are known and local, for our sons and daughters, our friends and our family, that carries moral weight. And that's why in the fight for human rights that we can't discount what Rabbi Akiva said and his insistence that love your neighbor as yourself is the most important principle in the Torah. Because in practice, it's really powerful. It's tangible. It's about self-interest, about who we are and what we know. As a Jewish human rights activist, I talk a lot about the protection for the stranger. And I quote the text from the Talmud that says that the Torah talks about protection for the stranger 36 times, more than the laws of Shabbat or keeping kosher. And that's not really a a statement about the essence of the stranger. It's about our own obligations, our place in history and our place in the world and the responsibilities it brings us. And when I say us, I don't just mean Jews. I don't mean people of faith, but I mean Americans. American values and Jewish values are very closely linked for many American Jews. It's a part of the American Jewish story to celebrate the freedoms that we found here that we did not have in the countries that we left. Okay, I came from Canada, and there are a lot more freedoms there. But for in general, um, in general, you know, we didn't come through Ellis Island either. But in general, that was true for a lot of American Jews whose families came over the, you know, as a response to the pogroms. And a world away from halakhic arguments and trying to see the other as sacred, American Jews care about the ground we've lost as Americans, and that's persuasive. I've come to describe the work that I do fighting torture as the most patriotic thing I've ever done. And it was really, you know, I think we heard liberals use the term patriotism a lot during the election of President Obama, but we actually have to fight for our own values, and we have to fight for our Constitution, and that's a really patriotic thing, and it's not something we concede to other communities. Tom Wilner, who's a Jewish lawyer who served as the lawyer for a dozen Kuwaiti men held in Guantanamo. And it's interesting, a significant number of the Guantanamo detainees have been represented by Jews, and one of the things their interrogators used to tell them was that that their lawyers wouldn't help them because they were Muslim. But a lot of the lawyers have been Jewish. Tom Wilner tells the story like this. He said, I believe passionately in America, and I think it's one of the things that has made me fight so hard in Guantanamo. It's said in our family, my great-grandfather was a rabbi of Vilna. That's where his name comes from. Wilner comes from the, from the word Vilna. And it's said in the 1870s that he read the Gettysburg Address, and he said, if there's such a country in the world, I want my children to grow up there. And my father told the story how my grandfather would take them to Gettysburg, and he would stand in front of them, and he would recite perfectly the Gettysburg Address, and also the preamble to the, to the Declaration of Independence with a slight Russian accent. And my father would say there would be tears in his eyes and that it was like a prayer. My father would say it was like a prayer. And in a sense, growing up in America with the belief in freedom and liberty and the rule of law, that was our religion. So where does this leave all of us? With repentance, with accountability and reconciliation. I've been working on Torture Awareness Month activities for NRCAD, Torture Awareness Month in June. And we've been trying to get across the message that accountability is not the same thing as revenge. We turn to the, and I've been really inspiring people. I've been talking about how, how Jews repent and, and the messages of Yom Kippur, the idea that we do a cheshbon nefesh, a spiritual accounting. Everyone really likes that. 
And I taught them that, I taught my coalition partners that the rabbis teach us that repentance brings peace to the world. But as a nation, we've been told that the way we repent is to move on, to move forward. But we really can't do that without acknowledging what we do in the past. You can't repent without acknowledging your complicity. You know, you can say, I'm not going to buy that product again, but until you actually do something to change the workers' conditions, not much has changed. The Jewish word for repentance, tshuva, takes a, assumes a look backwards, a returning, as an inherent part of the process. And it's collective. On Yom Kippur, we repent, we stand together, and we recite lists of ways that we've fallen short in the past year. And we didn't do all of those things we mentioned, but we all have responsibility for the fact that they happened. We all repent. And when the image of God is desecrated, that's our challenge, to repent and to insist on change. That first spring and summer, when I started reading about torture, I was pregnant with my older daughter, and I felt a tremendous sense of responsibility to her and to the next generation. So that when I got asked, what did you do when the United States committed active torture during the War on Terror, I would have some kind of answer. The generations to come, our children, our grandchildren, will not, expect, will not accept our narrative of ignorance, will not accept that we stood lightly and silently in the light of human rights abuses, that we stood by when human life was cheapened and human life was degraded, when those things were staring us in the face. This is the challenge to all of us today. We have to act. We can't be paralyzed even though these issues seem like they will take a lifetime to solve. And in the face of things that seem like they're going to take a lifetime to solve, we might say, why bother? But there's got to be a scale between solving something tomorrow and solving something in the time of the Messiah. There has to be a shorter-term goal that we may not see the end, but if we just work, we can see that our next generation will see the end. And so I'll I'll leave you with, with an answer that comes from the late Archbishop Oscar Romero, who was the Archbishop of El Salvador. And I learned it on that trip back in 2004 in the village that was named for him, Ciudad Romero. And he said, This is what we're all about. We plant seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds that have already been planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We can't do everything, and there's a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something, and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it's a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for God to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that's the difference between the master builder and the workers. We're workers, not master builders. Ministers, not messiahs. We're prophets of a future, not our own. Thank you.